welcome back to the show, everyone. Um, today, my general manager and myself are going to be um, jamming on a topic that we feel is very, very relevant and important to most of our members and anyone seeking a healthier lifestyle outside of our gym. And that is a talk around creating a healthy relationship to food. Um, now, we want to couch this conversation in the fact that neither one of us are registered dietitians and we are do not prescribe specific diets to anyone for any um, specific purpose. And if you're dealing with something like um, – uh, if you're dealing with something like a um, like a f eating disorder, we highly recommend that you seek professional help. Um, however, with that being said, we have come to realize that much of the benefit that the members that we have worked with um, have seen has come by the way of a focus, a heavy focus on reestablishing a healthy relationship to food rather than in the details of knowing more about how to eat um, or the educational aspect of understanding things like macronutrients and nutrient timing um, and kind of the minutiae that a lot of people talk about when it comes to nutrition. Um, Iris, do you want to expand on that a little bit? Um, I think you pretty much nailed it. Like not uh, so much what do I eat and how do I eat and what time do I eat and those kind of questions, but more the emotional side of how you relate to food. And I think um, Derek would agree that being in a good emotional place with food is almost kind of necessary to be able to actually implement the actual habits and the actual what do I eat and, and how do I eat and be able to sustain that. Um, if you have a really unhealthy relationship with food, either because of disordered eating in the past or just because of ideas you might have about it that are, you know, misinformed or coming from a place of, of food guilt or something like that, it's really hard to establish and keep healthy habits at all. So um, we're going to be talking about kind of how to maneuver that, like the emotional side um, and the relationship with food so that you can kind of have a good foundation for when you do want to actually change the way that you're eating. Yeah. And I'll set this up um, and give everyone kind of a, a, our four points that we're going to be tackling here. Um, so we're going to talk about our own personal journeys. I think something that is often lost is that coaches just always have their stuff figured out and they always have and they always will. And the reality is that many of the times what makes good coaches good coaches is the fact that they've had to go through a lot of the same struggles and battles that their clientele are now facing. So we want to expand on our own personal journeys a little bit and some of our previous experience and struggles with um, nutrition and our own relationships to food. Um, and we want to talk about defining what a healthy relationship to food is because if you don't define it, it's really hard to um, work towards a, something like a fuzzy target. So by creating a definition um, and a better understanding about what a true healthy relationship to food is, it's easier to, to try to obtain that. Um, we want to get into the biggest misconceptions um, and unhealthy dietary practices around creating a healthy relationship to food. And then we'll finish by talking about rebuilding your relationship to food. All right. Um, Iris, you want to kick us off? What's your personal journey? Um, yeah, I mean, I like that you mentioned that the coaches, it can seem like they have everything all figured out, but really a lot of the coaching experience that we have comes from our own experiences with not having it all figured out. I kind of feel like my bad relationship with food is kind of the reason that I eventually 
got into the fitness space and started coaching at all. So when I was in high school and when I was younger than in high school, I was always really, really active. Um, I've never been, you know, overweight um, or an unhealthy weight. And I have, you know, genetics to thank for that. And also just healthy habits that my parents always kind of instilled in us. We always just kind of ate healthy. Um, and I think that the relationship with food that was taught to me was pretty good. So um, I'm thankful for that. I think when I was probably around like a senior in high school, I was getting more self-conscious and like thinking about going to college and it was a really snap decision and it probably wasn't really, I was probably building up to it for a while, but it felt like I remember I came home from school and I wore uniform to school and my skirt was like kind of tight and I came home from school and I was in my room and I was looking in my mirror and I was like, I'm going to get skinny and I'm going to have a flat stomach and I'm going to do that. And this was when Tumblr was really, really big. And I don't know if you're familiar with the tag, like it's, it was called like Fitspo. So like Fitspiration. Um, but it was, I mean, there was definitely some good stuff on there, but a lot of like, you should eat 1500 calories a day. And like, here's how you should track. And here's how you like eat really clean. Um, and I definitely took all of that stuff a little bit too far. I tracked the calories, um, really, really meticulously. I exercised a ton. I, I ran a lot. Um, I went through a period where, I had to burn 250 calories on the elliptical before school, like five in the morning, I would get up and do it um, to like have a good day. I had to, I felt like I had to do that. So I had a lot of really good habits that I built. And I think things that I was doing that were not necessarily inherently bad, like the eating clean and like I was doing things that were good, but it was just coming from such a place of like, I'm bad and I need to be better. Like I'm you know, my body is not good and I need to make it better. So it was, it was always like very guilt fueled and felt exhausting, even though a lot of the things I was doing were actually probably healthy if I had a better perspective on them. Um, and as I went through that, I went through like a million mini phases of eating. At first I just tried to eat really clean. Then I was like, I'm tired of eating clean. I'm just going to eat whatever I want, but I'm going to just you know, track the calories. I definitely went through phases of just trying to eat as little as possible. I tried like intermittent fasting where it's like you literally go as long as you feel like you possibly can before eating. So I feel like I've had like a, like mini experience with like so many different ways of, of trying to diet essentially. Um, and I lost about 25 pounds. And the big thing for me was that I was never clinically underweight ever. So I've, I've never been clinically overweight or underweight. Um, so I had actual doctors saying that, you know, like, you're fine. You're not that skinny. Like, it's okay. But I knew that I, I knew, I started realizing that what I was doing was not healthy and people would say like, Oh, well you look great. Like you look amazing. So that kind of helped and didn't help. Cause I was like, well, I'm kind of getting to a point where I know this is not healthy. Um, and I remember I hit like the weight that I wanted to be and I genuinely felt like my life was like going to start. I'm like, well, now I'm this weight everything's great. And I did it. And now I just have to keep doing this for the rest of my life. And when I went to college, I think you just are a lot more on your own. And there's more things that you have to worry about um, than when you're in high school. And I really started realizing pretty quickly that in order to maintain that weight and keep doing what I was doing, I was literally thinking about food and exercise. Like it felt like all the time, like in class doing homework, the thing that's really on my mind is like, what am I going to eat next? Okay. How do these calories match up with like what I'm going to eat later? Um, when am I going to exercise? How many calories am I going to be doing that? Am I going to be hungry? What if I don't have 
the time to get the healthy food? What if I have to eat something that's bad? And it was just taking up so much of my mental space that I was like, I just, I can't do this anymore. And luckily I didn't get, I never got to the point where it was bad enough that I needed um, professional help. Like luckily I was able to kind of do it on my own, but I just like, I made the decision to get the flat stomach and be skinny. I made a decision to pretty much gain all the way back. I committed to like gaining all the weight back and knowing that it was going to be hard to feel like I was losing all my progress, but I really needed to do that to be healthy again. Um, so it was a long progress, uh, long process. And, um, it involved a lot of, which I'm sure we'll talk about later, kind of like relearning, like what, like what is normal with food and kind of like exposing myself to all these foods that for the longest time I was like, I can't eat those. They're bad. Um, so kind of like getting rid of all of that guilt. And it was definitely like hard and, and complicated, but, um, yeah, I gained all the way back. I, I lost my period for a year, which is something that happens to a lot of women when they, you know, lose a bunch of weight. Um, so that was like a big marker for me that was like, okay, you're you're not healthy. Um, so eventually I got that back. I had to gain pretty much every pound back for that to come back, which that's different for everyone, but that was the case for me. And um, yeah, I definitely still have some lingering things of my relationship with food um, that I work on, some, you know, guilt and different things that I um, still work on. It's not perfect, but I think that kind of like you were saying, I, I use those things to, um, help and relate to the people that, um, I work with. So, yeah. Yeah. I want to highlight something you said, um, and we can talk about it, uh, very shortly here, which is, it seems that for a lot of people, there is a kind of interdependence that goes on between their unhealthy eating habits and their unhealthy relationship to exercise. So you had these, the mornings where you're like, I have to get in the 250 calories or so on the elliptical before I can even like start my day. And it's funny how these go hand in hand. And like from the outsider's perspective, they can look at it like, oh, this is motivating. Like this person is getting up and doing workouts before they're going to school. So it, it takes a little bit more of a critical eye and a little bit more perspective of that person's life. Before, and you can very quickly realize like, oh, wow, these these seemingly positive things are actually negatively contributing to this person's self-worth, right? And the, and the way that they live their life. Um, so yeah, I just think it's interesting. And I bet that that's fa a fairly common problem is that the, the nutrition and the, the fitness side go hand in hand, both for the positive for people's lives or for the negative in the instance that you were, you were highlighting. Yeah. And I mean, I think part of that is a guilt with food is literally so normalized. Like there are a lot of people who you would say, well, I have to burn, like you said, I have to burn 250 calories before I start my day. And they're like, oh, that's awesome. That's great. Like, I wish I could do that. And like, um, things like the whole, I remember a big thing on, like I was saying, the whole Tumblr community, when I got into all this stuff, that was a big inspiration for me was like, you have to earn your breakfast. That was like a thing that really resonated with me and motivated me. And I feel like even today, a lot of people would be like, yeah, that makes sense. Cause that's like kind of an attitude and, uh, um, like an idea that I feel like is just popular, like feeling guilty about food and what you're eating is normal. Like, oh, I'm being bad. I'm having this cake. Like that's such a normal thing to say. And at first glance, it seems like harmless, but I think it really does contribute to the fact that all of that seems normal to a lot of us. Yeah, I agree. And I think we'll definitely expand more on the role that things like control play um, in this equation um, and how much that shows its face when, you know, you're having conversations around, um, the ability to, to eat foods guilt-free or not eat foods guilt-free um, and removing that emotional aspect to 
your dietary practices. Um, but before we we go off too much too quickly, because I know we have a lot to kind of get through today, um, I will I'll share my my background and story with this. So I think one of the things that's really fascinating and hard to to work through as you become an adult is the fact that most of your good and bad habits when it comes to your relationship to food have been given to you by your parents and your family. And this is tough because for some people it's more good than bad or more bad than good, but you have to be able to kind of piece or peel apart and appreciate the good things that they provided you, which you kind of talked about a little bit, right? You had some healthy eating habits that were instilled in you from from your parents, um, as did I. But then you also have to be able to recognize, well, what is the bad, you know? And I think it's, for me at least, it was a little bit tough because you look at your parents as like these great, awesome people that raised you and gave you so many opportunities. So there's almost a little bit of guilt that's associated with looking at some of the dietary practices that they had and then realizing like, oh, this actually wasn't the best thing for me, right? But it not not allowing that to um, stain your perspective uh, on your parents, right? Like they're not bad people. They were probably doing what they were taught and was passed to them. Um, so for me, what it boiled down to was there was a little bit of confliction that was going on pretty early in my life because I was a very quick and fast growing kid. Like I was just to paint the picture, like by the time I was in my freshman year um, of high school, I was six, three. So like I went through some massive growing spurts and alongside of this through development comes like very large fluctuations and things like weight. And the reality is that like when I was a kid, Probably up until I was about 12 years old, my body absolutely stored a little bit of fat. So when I would go to the doctor, and mind you, I'm playing sports year-round. Like, I'm the kid that comes home and is outside playing sports, practicing drills with basketball, doing all these things from an activity standpoint. I was not a sedentary kid in the slightest. But... I would put on a little bit of weight. I'd go to the doctor and be like, yeah, he needs to lose a little bit of weight. Well, once I got to an age where I started understanding a little bit more about nutrition, I was like, okay, cool, portion control. I'm going to start holding back a little bit on some of the meals that I'm eating and just having one serving of everything. And then I would go for a walk after the meals, right? And honestly, looking back, it was a completely and like total, totally a healthy practice for me as like a a young teenager, preteen. I don't remember exactly when this started. In terms of like, you know, walking to help digest food, having one uh, portion of food at the dinner table, instead of, I was so used to living a life uh, of, as somebody that, you know, my parents would brag about like how much I could eat, or, you know, they would always tell me things like, you need to finish what's on your plate because there's kids out there that are starving that don't have this opportunity. If you're going to put it there, you need to eat it. So I established a pretty unhealthy relationship with my fullness and hunger cues at an early age, because I just thought it was normal to just like eat to the point where you were like grossly stuffed, you know, and it was like this joke of like, oh, look how much Derek can eat, you know, and so be it. Like I was a growing kid and I was very active. But I had this kind of ping pong game going on between trying to like realizing that that probably wasn't the best and then trying to, to incorporate some level of portion control and the doctor saying like, okay, that's good. Like, yeah, you need to lose a little bit of weight. But then my family members, like my mom and my grandmom started being like, they, there was these little things they would like, I could tell my grandmom would pull me aside and be like, you know, 
you shouldn't worry so much about how much you're eating, you know? And, and like, it was just this weird dynamic where it was like becoming obvious to me. I was like, okay, like they're, they have some level of concern over the fact that like, I'm choosing to be a little bit more cognizant about how much I'm eating. So I was very confused, like as a teenager. And then you, you start having the pressures of, you know, you're, you're interested in girls and like, you want to look the part. It's not just about like being the best athlete. It's also about looking the best as an athlete. So I, it's this, these mixed messages start becoming really complicated for a teenage boy or teenage girl. Um, and I realized that like, I not only didn't have the best relationship to, with food in terms of my fullness and hunger cues, but like there was my parents and the people around me also had coping used food and alcohol for that matter as a coping mechanism. Right. And again, like my parents are amazing people and they did so much for me, but I can now look back and realize that like there were certain things that, um, set me up to move into my adulthood with some poor coping mechanisms in terms of food and with alcohol and really just made me think about how I want to, how I want to be as a coach, right. And how I want to be as a gym owner. And eventually, you know, in, in this case, like I want to be a, a good husband and, and be able to, uh, establish a healthy relationship to food with my wife and then eventually kids. Um, so it, I've spent a lot of time reevaluating my personal journey with this. And as I get older and I've learned more myself, you learn, like you keep digging up more and more of the past in a positive way and realizing things that went right and things that went wrong. And I think it gives you new perspective. Like every time I get, I, I add to my toolbox, I'm able to look back and reevaluate my, my child and teenage years through a different lens. Um, and I don't know if you experienced that at all, but like, I feel like as I grow as a person and update my own software, I, my perspective on my, my life before I knew all this stuff changes, you know, it's ever evolving. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I think like in, um, realizing new things about your relationship with food and like getting to know yourself better can make you better able to like, look back at things with a new perspective for sure. Yeah. Um, all right. So we covered our bases. Now what I want to get into is creating a definition around this. So like defining what a healthy relationship to food means. Do you want to kick things off? Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I feel like this is one of those things where there's not one definite, you know, answer. And I think that for certain different people in different like times in their life, it could even mean different things. Um, but in general, for I would say most of the people that we work with, I think a healthy relationship with food is one where this is kind of coming from my personal bias because I know I talked about at, at my worst was I realized that I was thinking about food all the time. I think a healthy relationship with food is one where food is kind of just food. And of course, like we're humans and we think about food a lot. That's normal. Like it's totally normal to think about what you're going to eat for dinner later and all of that, but it's kind of in its own lane and it's not interfering with your ability to focus on other things. Kind of like what I was describing where I was literally in class and I'm like all, I don't know what's happening because I'm literally just thinking about like how my calories are going to line up for the rest of the day. So it kind of being able to stay in its own lane um, and being able to give up like total control of it where like if last minute we decided that we were going to go to lunch today and I had my food planned out for the day, um, I would be able to do something like that without like losing my mind and freaking out and feeling like my life is falling apart. So I guess 
that food is kind of, again, staying in its own lane and it's supporting your life and what you want to do. And it's not taking away from anything that you want to be focused on or part of. Yeah, no, I love that. Um, I'll, I'll expand on that a little bit. So for me, I would say that it has to do with getting to a place where you're in control over the things that you eat rather than them being in control of you. And I think that what's important here is to paint the spectrum because it can go in so many directions. On one side, you have, I'm going to my grandmother's birthday and there's going to be cookies and cake and all sorts of these like hyper palatable foods and going there with some sort of an intention of like, I'm going to have a piece, but not have, I don't want to have very much. And then eating half the cake. Right. And then on the other, the flip side of this, you have the inability to ever allow yourself to indulge. And I feel like in both of those instances, the food is controlling you just in, in, in totally different ways. And I think people bounce back and forth between these two things. And this is in essence somewhat of what yo-yo dieting is like. It's like, I'm extremely restrictive. I'm not, I'm not, uh, you know, budging on anything within my diet. This is my time. I'm going to lose the weight. I want to look this way. And they like identify with a, with a picture or a, you know, a, a lifestyle of someone specific they're thinking about. And then their blood sugar drops, you know, they're, they're eating 800, 1500 calories below their maintenance. And they just get to a point where they're ravenous. Right. And now they can't, they can't hold themselves back from eating anything. Um, so I think the more you can find a little bit of homeostasis or equilibrium on that spectrum where you you are able to set intentions when you have outings um, to keep yourself from just like constantly overindulging, but on the flip side, also not allowing yourself to become so rigid that you can never enjoy yourself um, and, and, and just like understanding the way that food serves you uh, on a deeper level, I think really puts people in the best position possible to create a healthy relationship. Yeah. And I think this is like such a complicated thing to like tease out with people. But I think that like we were talking about before, it's so normalized to feel guilty about certain foods and to feel like this food is bad. That food is bad. I shouldn't eat that. That I think so many people are walking around daily. And even if it's just like on a mental level, there's like this baseline of restriction where it's like, if I'm at work and there's a plate of cookies, I'm not going to have one and it's going to be really hard, but like I'm going to white knuckle through it. And I know I shouldn't have this stuff. And I know I shouldn't have that stuff. And it's just kind of like always in your head, what you shouldn't have, what you shouldn't do. And even if you're not physically restricting a ton, even just having that mindset that like, I can only eat food that's boring. Like I have to restrict everything can lead you to a point where like there is going to be some sort of like binge or some sort of breaking of the cycle. And then when that happens, people usually feel the need to restrict after that. And that's where like, I think a lot of people are in the cycle, but they, they've never identified it because again, it's like, it seems normal in a lot of ways to a lot of us. Yeah. And, and while there's a lot of consistencies person to person um, in terms of the things that throw them off, you know, their environments, the types of outings and uh, that they go to, the types of friends that they have, the activities they partake in. Um, so there's a lot of, there's a lot of different types of levers b being pulled that are similar in people's lives. I feel as though there, there's always a personal aspect to this in that 
the, the gravitational pull we have to different things differs person to person. So a huge component to this actually falls into the camp of self-awareness. And it's, it's being able to discern between, you know, when am I eating because I, I'm genuinely hungry and I need to fuel my body properly versus when am I bored versus when am I eating out of emotion or as a coping mechanism. And I think the more that you become self-aware and a, the, have the ability to regulate your own emotions and be a little bit more uh, critical about why do I actually want to eat right now, it becomes it brings all of these things to the forefront and they become much more obvious rather than like subconscious and buried. Um, so I feel like self-awareness plays a huge role in your ability to establish a healthy relationship with food. Yeah. And like you said, recognizing those patterns that you have individually is the first step. Like if we have somebody who, you know, identifies as someone who struggles with emotional eating, the first step before ever even trying to stop doing it or trying to improve the habit is noticing, just noticing, right? Like when you're doing it, how you feel when you're doing it. Are there certain things that seem to be consistent, like a thing that happens at work before you want to emotionally eat? Or is there something with a relationship with someone in your family that, you know, when you're reminded of it, it makes you feel that way. Like just noticing those patterns. And once you really have that down, then you can work on improving um, the habits. Yeah. And I think there's also some cultural norms that act as barriers here too, because I have found it. And again, this is, I don't want to say it's anecdotal, but it's, it, I have a very small sample size of the amount of people that I work with in the context of the larger scale of this problem. Um, you know, nationally and globally, but I have personally found that for men, it's much harder for them to, to actually say to themselves, I'm eating because of an emotional reaction to something. Whereas with women, I have found that it's much easier for them to tune into their own emotions and figure out, oh, wow, like that person pissed me off at work. And that's why I've got, you know, grabbed six handfuls of these, <laughs> these gummy bears versus the guy is just like, no, I just felt like eating them. You know, and so I feel like the, the more we can break down some of those social norms um, and maybe some taboos around being able to look at yourself in the mirror and say, like, OK, at, why am I eating? Is it because of emotion and, and what possible triggers did I have today? The more we can start having an honest conversation about about those things. Yeah. And I mean, that's such a deep one, too, because it's really just like I have feelings and that's OK. And it might seem like that's, you know, deeper than like the relationship with food that we're talking about. But it really, I mean, food is something that is like inherent to all of us. So your deepest feelings, you know, about yourself are going to affect your relationship with food in some way. So it really does all come back to that kind of being open and like compassionate to yourself. Sure. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, we, I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole, but I think there's this effect of some toxic positivity coming in where people are essentially burying their emotions because they're like, no, 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 no. Like, and I, and I was guilty of this for years because it's like, I'm a coach. I need to be positive. I'm a role model. Like I need to be motivational for people. Like you need to get your shit together. And it's like, well, rather than just like accepting the fact that I was angry or sad or fearful or you name it, I would bury it, right? And the problem is, is those emotions, when buried, end up manifesting themselves in the form of coping mechanisms and eating for the for its own, you know, for the sake of of trying to uh, solve some sort of an emotional equation that's just never going to be solved by shoving your face full of food. Um, 
So yeah, I think like, again, it's like just bringing these things more to surface. So ultimately, to just to kind of wrap up that point, I think one thing you touched on and, you, and just part of your story, and, and I, I think we can round out this point on, is it just removing guilt around food and past dietary choices. Like it's, it's equally important that you don't feel guilty in the, the before of going to like a party where you're, you're like, okay, I, you know, I'm going to this party and you're already feeling some sense of guilt because you know, you're going to indulge in something, but also as you evaluate your past, it's like being okay with the fact that you weren't perfect and that you made some choices that you wouldn't make now. I think that by understanding or by having the, the feeling of like, I, I can't stand the thought of who I was is just a proving point of who you've become. Does that make sense? So it's like the, the recognition of the fact that you, you did something um, or, or you, your relationship with food caused you to behave in a certain way is really just the new updated version of yourself recognizing the fact that like you're someone different now. It's like if you, in other words, if you denied, like if you, if you had no problem with those things, then you haven't updated your software. Like you haven't grown as an individual. The fact that you have grown is what's causing these reactions to your previous experiences with food. Right. Yep. Yeah. Totally. Um, okay. So let's dive into some of the biggest misconceptions and unhealthy dietary practices. You can sh- you can st- start on this one. Um, like a misconception that I think a lot of people have. Yeah. Um. I, probably just that you have to eat you know, um, according to your plan or like eat clean or eat healthy, like a hundred percent of the time. And even that, like people who look the way that you want to look and people who seem to have maybe like accomplished physically what you want to accomplish that they eat, um, you know, perfectly a hundred percent of the time. And I think emotionally, um, or, uh, logically, logically people know like, Oh, it doesn't have to be perfect. doesn't have to be perfect. Um, I can, you know, have a treat every once in a while, but I think it's really, really hard for people to actually implement that, um, and kind of know how to have like a treat or like, you know, a food that's not something they would eat every day, how to have that and then kind of not have it turn into like a whole binge because they feel, I mean, they feel it's the getting rid of the guilt, um, around it. So I don't know if that's like a misconception. I guess that's like a pitfall that people have sure. is taking the, the knowledge that they know that they don't have to be perfect hundred percent of the time, but how do I, let's say you're going for like 80, 20, how do I actually have that 20% of like, you know, I, I don't want to use like good and bad words, but there's foods that are better for your goals and habits that are better for your goals. And there's habits that aren't as good for your goals. And you can basically, most people can accomplish what they want to accomplish by, having about 80% of, you know, the stuff that's best for their goals and 20% of the stuff that's maybe not as good, but it is good for you maybe in other ways because you can go out to a restaurant with your friends and have fun and, you know, eat foods that your family cooks and have fun. Um, And I think it's really hard for people to actually have that 20% and not feel guilty or not feel like it ends up being way more than 20% with like an all or nothing mentality, which is all coming from like the guilt that we talked about at the beginning. Yeah. I'm going to expand on the, the good and bad part of that. Um, so I had a client once ask me if we're not going to associate food as good and bad, then what do we call it? Right. And I was like, Oh shoot. Like I actually have to come up with some definitions here. And, uh, 
I have found that the one of the best examples that I have ever gotten is actually from the CrossFit Kids Cert, um, and it's the way that they teach kids about food and categorize it, which is there's all of the time food, there's some of the time food, and there's every once in a while food. And in in this way, it takes food from this this category, uh, you know, this binary good and bad, and it puts it into camps which are more in line with how does this food serve me right now, right? And if you're eating ice cream three times a day, it's not serving you very well. But if you're never eating ice cream and it's something that you genuinely enjoy, it's not serving you in that way either. So it's the recognition that there's no such thing as good and bad food. It just serves you in different ways. Um, And I think that that's a really good way of triaging uh, your thinking patterns around breaking food down into different camps um, rather than just labeling it good or labeling it bad. Because again, good and bad is even, even if you were to use that terminology, it's extremely contextual. So if anyone has ever seen Michael Phelps diet when he was training in the Olympics, that man was crushing whole pizzas and whole pounds of bacon and like whole cartons of eggs on a daily basis and pancakes and all this syrup. And it's like, for the average person, they would look at that and be like, that's a bad diet. And it's like, well, not for a man that's burning 7,500 calories a day. So right. I think it's important to remember that this is always contextual, right? Fruit is fantastic. But for somebody that's diabetic, they probably shouldn't be eating three cantaloupes a day. So it's, 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 and I, that, that's a ton, right? Probably a bit of an exaggeration, but you get the point. Um, so that's why I don't, I, I really don't like using the terminology good and bad. And we, we try to stay astray from that, um, as much as, as humanly possible. Yeah, that's cool that that's what they say at the kids are. I didn't, I didn't, I've never heard of that before that they use that exact language there. Um, but it's kind of also like the, we have, um, the precision. Neut- I'm some of the time. You 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 broke up there for a quick second. Oh, sorry. I was um just comparing the all the time, some of the time, every once in a while foods to um like the precision nutrition graphic that's like the green, yellow, red. And I think the biggest like point there for a lot of people, the most valuable point is that there's like nothing that's never unless it's something that you have some physical reason to not eat. Um, there's no reason that there's foods that you need to be saying, I can never eat this if I want to accomplish my goals. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah. And most of the research that I've seen that has come out by the way of, uh, showing success rates with dietary practices actually has an allowance baked in. It's a funny term to use for that, but has an allowance that is baked into, um, the, 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 the dietary structure where people go through like a four week period of slight restriction and then have like a five day or a seven day period of slight surplus. So they're giving themselves these kind of intermittent breaks throughout their diet. And they find that people generally have the best success with that because it, one, it gives them like a mental break, right? It's like, Oh, like I don't have to weigh and measure everything. And I can indulge in some things that I've been putting off for a few weeks but it also gets them excited once again to kind of get back onto the horse, right? And like I know we we really try to avoid – we don't want people to feel like it's like on the wagon, off the wagon. But when you said intentional breaks, that's a totally different thing. You're saying to yourself, 
I'm not like I'm going to give myself a little bit of a caloric surplus over the course of like a week or so. But that doesn't mean that I'm just going to eat anything and everything that I want. You're not like completely disrupting all of the healthy habits that you've you've created. And oftentimes, once you get on to once you see momentum, you don't want to stop. Like the person that lost 18 pounds isn't going to be like, all right, time to put half of it back on so I can lose another. You know, like they don't want to play that game. But by giving yourself those intermittent breaks, I think it really sets people up for success with with being able to do this over the long haul. Yeah, for sure. I agree. Um, so one point I wanted to touch on here was some of the misconceptions around food quantification. Um, so there's so many different camps with this. And I think what's important to note here is that there, there are a lot of different ways that you can weigh and measure food, and none of them are right or wrong. There, some are just more tedious than others and, and are better suited for people at different stages of their diet, like dietary beha- and, like behaviors. And I think they range from using the palm of your hand as a referencing tool, uh, you know, in your, the thumb uh, and, you know, different fingers for determining like portion sizes. And this is great for people that travel a lot. This is great for people that have never had any experience with weighing and measuring food. And while it's not the most accurate by any means, it's far better than not measuring at all. And it's far better than somebody, than having somebody uh, weigh down to the gram, everything that they eat and then getting sick of it because it's taking up so much time from their day and they're establishing this negative relationship with having to weigh food, it it gives them kind of that happy medium. So I think, you know, at base level, getting someone to be able to have some quantification process is always a positive. We just don't need to be, hey, you're not doing anything to like, you're going to start weighing everything and I want it to the gram. Um, You know, and then from there, it's like, you can get people into you understanding like fullness and hunger cues and you utilizing that as a quantification process. Um, so there's, there's steps to this. And eventually if it's right for the individual, sure. If we want to start weighing and measuring everything with, with measuring cups and scales, that's great, but it has to be in alignment with what the goals are. And for most people, I would argue that that's probably not necessary. Like you can absolutely lose body fat, gain lean mass, um, and just improve your metabolic health in general by the way of just eyeing out your food, right? And that's not a perfect solution or formula for everybody, but I think that there's a misconception around the fact like in order to be able to see real change with your diet that you have to be extremely accurate with the way that you weigh and measure food. And I think the more we become a little bit more interoceptive to things like fullness and hunger cues, the more we realize that like our body already has very natural like parameters and uh, signals that it gives to us to let us know when we need to eat and when we should probably stop eating. Yeah. Um, everyone's different in terms of like where they start at with this kind of thing. And it could be harder or easier for some people, but I actually feel like for a lot of people getting to what a healthy relationship with food is for them actually kind of requires them to be okay with not measuring everything and like being able to use their hunger and fullness cues even if you know they measure for periods of time or maybe it gets to a point where they're like i just really like measuring everything and it you know it helps me and it's coming from a place of you know a healthy relationship with food i think that 
a tenet of a healthy relationship with food is let's say like you lose your scale and you don't have any measuring cups for a week like are you going to be able to kind of trust your body and not feel like everything's going to fall apart because you can't measure everything yeah no absolutely absolutely and i yeah i mean i i think one we can get people to get more focused if we can get more people to get focused on the daily changes and the behavioral changes necessary that they want to make, you know, every single day rather than being so fixated on the end result. I think this also helps alleviate a lot of these kind of short term, uh, you know, instant gratification type practices. So the more people have buy into the fact that this, this isn't something that they want to do to look a certain way at uh, their friend's wedding in three months or because they want to look, you know, in parallel or to similar to a person in a magazine or on TV. And the more they can focus on, I just want to be the type of person that makes healthier choices. It, it sets people up for success because we're now talking about action rather than outcome. And the more people lean into action, the more likely they are to be able to have a little bit better discernment over, you know, the momentary decisions that they make, you know, rather than thinking of like, oh, I'm so far away from looking like that. What does it even matter? You know, um, and this is why you always hear like nutrition, n- successful nutrition needs to become a lifestyle. And really all that means is that like you're buying into the daily process of being the person that you want to be rather than, than constantly yearning for the person you want to become. Yeah, totally. I agree. Um, so a, another thing I, I do definitely want to touch on is um, removing these kind of like dogmatic approaches to your nutrition. I think it's really easy for people to want to fall into a camp because it gives them some sense of identity. And I, I, I put out a post the other day that was uh, something along the lines of, if you want to know who to follow online or who to take advice from in terms of nutrition, steer clear of people that heavily identify with a specific dogmatic approach to their nutrition, right? So in other words, like I don't have a problem if someone chooses to eat vegan. I don't have a problem if someone chooses to be a vegetarian or carnivore or use intermittent fasting. But to tell everyone that it is the best way and it is the way that everyone should be dieting is just ignorance. And I think that it, it, what it does is it sets people up for failure because if they then try that diet and it doesn't work for them, they go, well, I'm just a failure. It's not, it's not them. It's me. Like I'm the one that's screwing this up. So I think we have to realize that everyone responds differently to different dietary practices. And while there are absolutely people that find success with something like intermittent fasting, it's usually the byproduct of these diets that's helping people rather than the actual diet itself. So in other words, like in a, in something like when people become vegan, it's like, well, sure. If you give up major food groups and really limit the, your, a bit like you limit the expansiveness of what you can even eat, you are by nature probably going to consume less calories. And when you intermittent fast and you close the window down on when you can eat meals, just by the nature of, of 
lessening the amount of time throughout the day that you can eat, you're probably going to consume less calories. Now, these things can be little nifty tricks to the trade for every individual. And depending on how your body um, and your appetite responds to them, they may work, but they may only work for a short amount of time. Like I know plenty of people that have stuck with intermittent fasting for six months or so, and then recognize that like given their current lifestyle or their current goals, it probably wasn't the best idea for them, you know? So rather than like planting the flag in the ground with any of these camps, you can utilize them, but understand that they're not always necessarily going to serve you. And it's not the only way that this can be done. Um, and I think this also falls true for people that come from a place of they were an athlete or they were someone that, um, leaned heavily into like big restrictions around food and they took Tupperware wherever they went. And now they're trying to assume somewhat of a normal life. And it's really hard for them to like revert back to a place where they're like, Oh, like I can indulge a little bit and I don't have to weigh and measure everything. And it can become this tug of war where they're like, they constantly want to go back to that life they had. But the reality is like, you can have, you, you can have anything you want, want, but you can't have everything you want. And as you get older and your lifestyle changes, you know, maybe you now have a family and maybe you're running a business or maybe, you know, you moved up in your career and it's more consuming of your time and energy. You can't hold yourself to the same standard that you once held yourself to in that very, very kind of narrow focus uh, of your nutrition. So, um, yeah, I think it's just important for people to understand the role, like kind of this, the, the danger of taking the dogmatic approach, um, but also recognizing that like diet serves us differently throughout our different phases of life. Yeah. And it, you basically like said this in so many words, but what's really, really important for people to remember, and that something that I think actually a lot of people don't know about all of the fad diets, I mean, if we can assume that most people's goal with a diet like that and the people that are being targeted by the dogmatic people in each diet group, they're looking to lose weight. Like, they're generally like, this is going to help you lose weight. That's the most common thing. Now, are there people being like, keto is going to make you really strong? Like, sure, there are. But the most popular message, like, in America is like, this is going to help you lose weight. And I think what's really important for people to remember is like, just so we're all on the same page, guys, the only way that you lose weight is by eating less calories than you're burning. You have to be in a calorie deficit. So all of these fad diets and keto and Weight Watchers or whatever, if they work for somebody, that's great. They work because they're an effective way for that person, for whatever reason, to eat less calories. So if somebody loses weight doing keto, you know, it's because something about the, that way of eating it feels easier for them to eat less calories. Maybe the way that Weight Watchers is set up with the points, it feels easier for me to eat less calories. But all of those people on all of those diets are losing weight because they're eating less calories. It's not something about the diet itself that's making that happen. And I think that's usually what the people who are trying to, I mean, let's be honest, like sell you some diet are doing is making it seem like there's something about this that's gonna make it, probably they're gonna make it sound like it's gonna be really easy and that it's going to be different. Like this actually works completely different from anything you've done. And I don't want to say never because we just said like, we don't want to say always or never, but like that's almost never going to be true. That it's going to work completely different from anything you've ever done. They're all just ways to eat less calories. And you can find the way that works best for you to be in, you know, a healthy caloric deficit if your goal is to lose weight 
um, and you can explore those different options. But at the end of the day, that's what they're doing if they are successful. Yeah, and look, it might be the it might help you more than anything that you've ever done at this given moment. But you also sure. have to ask yourself, is this sustainable? And the reality for a lot of of specific diets around major restriction is that they're not sustainable. It's not something you're going to, to adhere to for your entire life. Um, and this is in part what causes the yo-yo dieting. And there was a point I wanted to make in there, which was there's also a really important difference between weight loss and recomposition. And I think for some people there are, if you fall into, you know, the, the, I need to lose a hundred pounds to improve my metabolic health Losing weight at all costs is the name of the game for that individual. But for a lot of the people that we work with inside of the gym, when they say I want to lose weight, what they really mean is recomposition. Like I want to be able to see the muscle that I'm spending so much time trying to earn. Um, and sure, some of that comes by the way of fat loss and some of it comes by the way of muscle gain. And one point I want to make here is that I think – Muscle gain has throughout, it, it's getting better, but there's still this taboo around it, especially for women, because the, as soon as they hear muscle gain or hypertrophy, they they think to themselves, they, they go right to the place of like, I don't want to be bulky. And the re, this is the reality. This is the, the parallel or the analogy I always love to make when it comes to muscle gain. Muscle gain is like passive income. Like when you have additional muscle on your body, it costs your body more every single day to maintain your physical health and your muscle tissue. So in other words, you're burning more calories for doing absolutely nothing by having more muscle. In addition to that, you have more to show when the fat loss occurs. So if you, in other words, if you just go on this extremely restrictive diet and you cut your calories by a thousand per day, you can lose 15 pounds and then look in the mirror and look the same because the majority or at least a large part of that weight loss came by the way of lean muscle tissue. And the part that sucks there is if you've been giving yourself, you know, uh, if you've been pushing hard in the gym and making a, a part of your dedication resistance-based training, you can lose a lot of the benefit that you gained. So it's you have to be mindful of not chasing the, the wrong rabbit here, which is in this case, I just need to lose weight at all costs because for most people, that's probably not the center of the bullseye. Yeah. And I mean, when people say that they want to get toned, if you've ever been like, I want to tone, like, that's what you really want is you want to, you know, be leaner and have some sort of muscle definition look. So yeah, that's pretty much what you're describing. Um, all right. So to wrap this up, we're going to get into the last point, um, which is rebuilding a relationship. And I know we touched on a lot of things that probably would, would at least, um, you know, shadow into this camp a little bit. Um, but we can, we can, uh, finish up with that. So you want to kick off? Yeah. Like how to rebuild your relationship with food. Um, uh, I think the first thing is it's so different for everybody. Just, identifying where you're either feeling guilt around food or what is like the thing or things with food that you keep like kind of kicking yourself for like oh i shouldn't have done that like i shouldn't have done this um oh i i just can't seem to 
keep up with this habit. I just can't seem to eat the way that I want to. And really getting curious about when it happens, why it happens, where it's coming from. Um, well, I think almost all of the common issues with this do come from like a place of guilt or some sort of bad feeling about yourself. So getting curious about that and um, kind of working on unlearning the guilt around certain things, which is like so oversimplified, but um, that's the answer at the core of it, I feel. Yeah, no, I love that. Um, so I'll, I'll talk about some other points because I think you nailed that one. Um, so we use what's called the five wise technique when we were, are working with a new client. And the, the point of this is to basically get at the root, the, especially the emotional root of why someone wants to make dietary changes. And oftentimes people go to the first step and they stop. So it's like, why do you want to lose weight? I want to look skinny, right? Or why do you want to lose weight? Like, I don't want to have a stomach. And it's like, okay, well, why is that important to you, right? And then you keep playing this why game till you get to a point where you realize in actuality it's because they want to be able to live a long life to play with their kids or they don't want to be huffing and puffing in front of their coworkers as they're going up and down the steps. Like you can get to the emotional root of why people genuinely want to make these changes and now it means something greater to you as an individual rather than just these vanity metrics of like, I need to conform to this specific body type because I, I'll look better on a beach. And like all those things are awesome and are a byproduct of these other things. It's just that generally they don't change very quickly, right? Like change with like true and absolute change with nutrition and with physiology takes time. So if your motivating factor is just visual, you're going to be disappointed month after month because it's not going to happen as quickly as you would like it to happen. But if you have buy-in to a deeper emotion, right, and reasoning behind why you want to eat a certain way, it's going to resonate with you on a greater level during the moments where you're 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 feeling like overindulging or you're stressing out and you want to reach into the cabinet. So the, the more ingrained your why is and the more defined it is, the easier it is to make the right decision when you're, you're at the fork in the road. Yeah. Um, I have a couple more I want to dive through on this and then, um, you know, I'll see if you, there's anything else you want to chop, <laughs> chop up and then we'll, we'll move on. So um, uh, the other one that I have is talk to those around you that are negatively contributing to your um, – you're like negatively contributing to your uh, relationship with food. So one of the things that I've found that had to be kind of some barriers for a lot of the people that I've worked with is that as they're updating their own beliefs and behaviors with nutrition, they have people around them that aren't making the transition alongside of them. So it's like they go out to dinner with their friends because they're trying to still be able to go out and ha enjoy food uh, you know, without having to like eat out of a Tupperware at their house every single meal. But at the same time, their friends are giving them shit for not eating, eating the chicken fingers, right? Or like, oh, you're not going to get fries today. You got a salad. Like what's going on with you? You know, and I feel like there's this pressure and, and this is the whole, to some degree, misery loves company. I feel like people that, you know, if, if they are going out and having the 10 beers make want to make themselves feel better. Uh, but if you're doing it with them, so they'll pressure you into it when, um, when they see you starting to make change because then it, they feel guilty themselves. 
You know, it's like a it's like a mirrored reflection of themselves. It makes them reevaluate whether decisions they're making um, are actually in their own best interest. So, and the same thing is true of people even in your own household, whether it's a parent, a sibling, um, uh, a spouse. There's a lot of times where you'll have like someone in a relationship making a, a major change or update to their life, and the people around them, not even always knowingly, are making comments and setting environments for this person that are not conducive to their current mission. And I think by being upfront and having this conversation with these people, you, you're, you're going to nip it in the bud ahead of time rather than just feeling resentment and frustration down the road. Um, so yeah, I think that having the right conversations with, with the people around you that are gonna be the most influential as, uh, as part of this journey for you is a really, really good step in the right direction. Yeah, I totally agree. And like having, I think, like a really important thing to kind of establish to to do that is knowing yourself and being able to have the boundaries that you need to have in different situations. Because like we were talking about earlier, there's probably situations where the healthiest thing for you to do is to go with your friends and, you know, have the chicken fingers and like maybe even have some beers and like enjoy that time because that's what's healthiest for you on all levels right then. But then there's also going to be times where maybe the healthiest thing is to say like, hey, mom, I know you made all of these desserts, but I'm not going to have that today because um, this you know, plan that I'm doing is really important to me. And having the self-awareness to know which is which and kind of be able to understand that if people give you a hard time for the second one, kind of not doing what they feel like you should be doing, um, realizing that that has a lot more to do with them than what you're actually doing. Yeah, and the difference between the two examples that we just painted, right, the, the one where they go out with their friends and they don't eat those things and then are, you know, fielding the comments from friends versus when they do go and have those things really just boils down to intention. And I think that ultimately the way that we recognize as coaches when somebody is really, really like transforming and starting to get into a good place with their relationship with food is when they start to develop some agency and authorship over their decision-making. So you get to a place where it's like, you're the one, you're the one calling the shots over your meals and your indulgences. So for example, in a given week, you may say to yourself, Hey, I have this event on Saturday and there's going to be wings there. And I love those wings. So I'm, I want to have some, right. And yeah, you can apply your fullness and hunger cues and make sure you're not like going crazy with it. But then on Wednesday, it's someone's birthday in the office and there's a big pie or cake that's coming in and that's not part of your intentions. So it's like recognizing the fact that like you can stay away from the cake because you have already set intentions to enjoy this meal on Saturday. And I think this is really where people start being able to be in control in a very healthy way is they're setting intentions for themselves on a daily and weekly basis so that they, when they come to the fork in the road, the decision is already made. They don't need to reevaluate how they feel about it then. It's like, I've made my decision because I know that my time for indulgence is this Saturday. And I feel like this is like a really healthy, that's the, that transition to getting to that point for somebody just puts them in such a, a place of success. 
Yeah, and I, I mean, having the intentions for it and especially having the intentions of eating those once-in-a-while foods and, like, intentionally kind of planning to eat the, you know, what was it, the less often and the once-in-a-while foods, I think is what kind of helps... It's one of the things that helps you get past the guilt that we've been talking about because even if you you're you know having an intention to not have the cake at the coworkers birthday party the intention and the knowledge that like maybe next weekend you are going to have something kind of helps you realize like okay there's going to be cake again it's not all or nothing like i can have this moment where maybe this is even kind of hard and i'm not going to like go out of control and spiral because i know that there's going to be other times where I'm going to have things and it's not like this all or nothing. And like the cheat day mentality is kind of like one of the things that ties into this where like there's this one day where I have to pack everything in um, and like eat as much bad stuff as possible and not to like go onto a different topic. But I feel like it kind of like um, being intentional helps you get away from that mentality where like I'm not going to have this now, but I'm going to have it later and it's OK. And there's no all or nothing with any foods. Right. Yeah, no, 100%. I agree. Um, the other piece to this is like, I feel like people need to focus on just sticking to the basics and try to keep themselves away from distraction. A lot of times when people, it's kind of like if you're if you're searching for like a, a pair of shoes, even if you buy the shoes, you're going to continue to get a bunch of advertising and marketing focused around different types of shoes. And I think the same is true for the way that people um, create this gravitational pull and I mean, there is a, the the algorithmic aspect to this, which is uh, once someone starts becoming more focused around their dietary habits, they're more likely not just to see different articles and things online in regards to diet, nutrition, and and like weight loss, but they're also there's an increased likelihood they're going to seek those things out, be it through conversation with friends, with a coworker, be it through a podcast they're listening to be it through um, things that they read online, at the end of the day, it's like if, if you're focusing on the basics and you're not getting caught up in the minutia, you're going to be less distractible. And I feel like a lot of times what happens is you finally reel someone in with their nutrition and now they're like, well, which rice is better, white or brown? And it's like, mm, how about we stop loading our coffee's up with sugar six days a week, right? It's like there's there's bigger fish to fry here. So the more we can get focused on the basics and keep people's heads out of the weeds, I think it just puts them in a better position uh, to make real change. And that's something that's that's everywhere too is something that I think is unfortunately kind of powerful in terms of marketing of like the dogmatic diets and the fads and stuff like that is making people think that like, there's this little thing that you've been doing that you would have never thought about that you need to change. Like either having a different kind of rice or like, oh, well, there's actually this secret where you just have to have this kind of apple instead of that one and everything's gonna change. And making people believe that like things like that are gonna make a difference um, is just like super distracting, like you said. And yeah, and I think ultimately it's just like like uh, the, one of my favorite people that I uh, lean into when it comes to uh, just nutrition advice in general is is uh, Lane Norton, who has his PhD in it's not in dietetics, it's like uh, nutrition sciences. He's got his PhD in nutrition sciences, and one thing that Lane does an amazing job of is he says like read studies, not books, and. Under books, you know, you would basically in parentheses put articles, social media, uh, you know, and, and every any other form of 
a resource that is basically an interpretation of an interpretation of one particular study. Um, and it's really hard for someone that even has the knowledge base of how to look at research and be able to pick it apart and understand where it falls in the hierarchy of evidence and how it uh, relates to other studies and whether or not it's as credible as other studies. It's hard for someone that even is in the know to be able to pull all that apart because there's so many of them. They come out all the time and it's not the, the most simple process to go through. And let alone for the individual that is just the basic consumer looking to improve their diet. So I think it's it, it's not it's really important that you you just re rely on your coach and somebody that you trust to be able to help you, rather than constantly trying to decipher this huge um, you know assortment of information coming your way. So if you're constantly seeking those things out, you are going to be just like inevitably confused. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> just, just a nod. Are. Yeah. Okay. Well, Hey, this one, this might, this, this is either the longest one we've done or pretty darn close to it. So we're going to wrap this thing up, but, um, Iris, this was a blast. And I know people are really going to take a lot out of this guys. If you have any questions, concerns, or, um, want to throw anything our way, we're more than happy, uh, to talk to you. So shoot us a message. Um, and as always guys, if you like this podcast, please like, and subscribe. We'll see you guys next time. Thank you again for jumping on the podcast today. I just want to take a quick second to remind you that we post a lot of free and helpful content on our social media pages. You can find us at Hardbat Athletics on Instagram and Facebook. Visit our website at www.hardbatathletics.com to learn more about what we do at our facility. Let's keep raising the standard together.